Now here, reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 41. At the end of two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. In the morning he was troubled, so he called for all the diviner priests of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but nobody could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I recall my failures. Pharaoh was enraged with his servants, and he put me in prison in the house of the captain of the guards, me and the chief baker. We each had a dream one night. Each of us had a dream with its own meaning. Now a young man, a Hebrew, a servant of the captain of the guards, was with us there. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted the meaning of each of our respective dreams for us. It happened just as he had said to us. Pharaoh restored me to my office, but he impaled the baker. Then Pharaoh summoned Joseph. So they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. He shaved himself, changed his clothes, and came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard about you that you can interpret dreams. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, It is not within my power, but God will speak concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing by the edge of the Nile. Then seven fat and fine-looking cows were coming up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the reeds. Then seven other cows came up after them. They were scrawny, very bad-looking, and lean. I had never seen such bad-looking cows as these in all the land of Egypt. The lean, bad-looking cows ate up the seven fat cows. When they had eaten them, no one would have known they had done so, for they were just as bad-looking as before. Then I woke up. I also saw in my dream seven heads of grain growing on one stalk, full and good. Then seven heads of grain, withered and thin and burned with the east wind, were sprouting up after them. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads of grain. So I told all this to the diviner priests, but no one could tell me its meaning. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, both dreams of Pharaoh have the same meaning. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows represent seven years, and the seven good heads of grain represent seven years. Both dreams have the same meaning. The seven lean, bad-looking cows that came up after them represent seven years, as do the seven empty heads of grain burned within, with the east wind. They represent seven years of famine. This is just what I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the whole land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will occur after them, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will devastate the land. The previous abundance of the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows, for the famine will be very severe. The dream was repeated to Pharaoh because the matter has been decreed by God, and God will make it happen soon. So now, Pharaoh should look for a wise and discerning man and give him authority over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh should do this. Pharaoh should do this. He should appoint officials throughout the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming. By Pharaoh's authority, they should store up the grain so the cities will have food and they should preserve it. This food should be held in storage for the land in preparation for the seven years of famine that will occur throughout the land of Egypt. In this way, the land will survive the famine. 
This advice made sense to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find a man like Joseph, in one in whom the Spirit of God is present? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, because God has enabled you to know all this, there is no one as wise and discerning as you are. You will oversee my household, and all my people will submit to your commands. Only I, the king, will be greater than you. See here, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I place you in authority over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his own hand and put it on Joseph. He, put it, he clothed him with fine linen clothes and put a gold chain around his neck. Pharaoh had him ride in the chariot used by his second in command, and they cried out before him, kneel down. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your permission, no one will move his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath paneah He also gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. So Joseph took charge of all the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he began serving Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph was commissioned by Pharaoh and was in charge of all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced large, bountiful harvests. Joseph collected all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and stored it in the cities. In every city, he put the food gathered from the fields around it. Joseph stored up a vast amount of grain, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it because it was impossible to measure. Two sons were born to Joseph before the famine came. Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, son, priest of On, was their mother. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, saying, Certainly God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's house. He named, he named the second child Ephraim, saying, Certainly God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end. Then the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had predicted. There was famine in all the other lands, but throughout the land of Egypt, there was food. When all the land of Egypt experienced the famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Pharaoh said to all the people of Egypt, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. While the famine was all over the earth, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. The famine was severe throughout the land of Egypt. People from every country came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe throughout the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, please speak to us about your word. Father, in this scripture, we are encouraged that even in the hardest circumstances, you still speak to your people. You guide them. You work your story in the midst of other global stories. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes through this story to see what you're doing in and through us today. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this well-known story of Joseph interpreting 
Pharaoh's dreams is genuinely a great encouragement to believers. Uh, I suspect if you grew up in Sunday school, you, uh, you know this story. You've heard it many times. You've heard about Joseph interpreting these dreams and the, the seven years and all of that. Um, but as we're getting into this, I, I, I want you to just ask yourself a simple question. Um, you are in the minority globally. Of course, you're part of the world's largest religion. Christianity is still number one, but that's at most 30% of the global population, which means 70% of the globe uh, does not believe the things that most of you believe, does not consider themselves part of this. So you've beaten the odds. And my question to you is, why you? Why you? You could presumably evaluate your life and see that it was circumstances outside of your control that led to your faith. You know, whether it's people in your life, influential people, parents, uh, grandparents, neighbors, a teacher, whatever. Somebody impacted you in such a way that you were drawn in. Your circumstances aligned in such a way that you were drawn in. And when you consider it in that way, you discover God chose you. God picked you out. And so now we need to ask, why? I've been arguing throughout our study of the book of Genesis that the only way to read it correctly is to read it by ask, asking the same questions that the first readers were asking or the first hearers of these stories. Now, um, not all scholars agree that the first hearers were the Israelites who had been delivered from Egypt, but that's what I think uh, happened, that after God rescued his people from Egypt and they were miraculously delivered from, you know, one of, if not the most powerful empires on planet Earth, uh, even though they had no, you know, uh, economic power, no military power, they're miraculously rescued, then they need to figure out who they are, who this God is who rescued them, why us. I mean, think of it, you're wandering in the desert, you're, you're with, you know, a million of your closest friends, not really, probably people who are by now getting under your skin. You're being given a whole new set of laws and rules to follow, and you're following this cloud or pillar of smoke and fire around the wilderness. And you're what, like, what is it about you that makes you special, that makes you worthy of this God, worthy of this rescue? They are constantly asking the question, why us? I have uh, greatly benefited from a couple commentators throughout this study of Genesis. One is Sidney Gradonis, the other is Alan Ross. They, they wrote great commentaries on the book of Genesis. And both of them say the same thing about this passage. They think that this passage was meant to encourage the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness, that God will sovereignly use uh, the, the events in other nations even to protect and preserve his chosen people. 
And I could see why they would say that, right? I mean, Joseph is brought out of Egypt. He's given the answers to these dreams. And if you know where the story's going, this is going to lead to the Israelites moving into Egypt and being protected for a time. And even though I can see where they're getting that, and I can actually see why that would be really encouraging to the Israelites in the wilderness. You're surrounded by neighbors who don't like you. You have no military. You have no way to defend yourself. You need to know that God is going to sovereignly use the events in the other nations to protect you. Even though I could see why they would really like that, I'm not actually convinced that that's what this passage is doing. I think this passage is getting at that question that I started with. Why us? Why us? And actually, I think a lot of the book of Genesis is getting at that question. Why us? You see, this passage pulls your mind and heart back to the very beginning of Genesis. Even as Michelle was reading it aloud, I, I was struck again. I've been studying it all week, but I was struck again. How many times... Did Joseph feel it was necessary to repeat the word seven? You had to repeat, it's, the two dreams have the same meanings. The seven means this, and it means seven that, and seven this, and seven that. And then remember the seven, and there's also the seven. He repeats seven again, and again, and again. Why? Well, because that pulls out the, the people of God's minds and hearts back to this beautiful, structured way that we're told about the creation of the world. All things were created in the span of seven days. God completed his work in this seven-day cycle. And, and, and all throughout Genesis chapter 1, things appear in sevens. It was good seven times. Uh, the, uh, the, there's blessing that's pronounced seven different times. It, the, the whole chapter is structured into sevens to remind us of God as this orderly and good creator. Okay, so seven, seven, seven in this passage, it draws our minds back to that. Well, in Genesis chapter one, at the climax of Genesis chapter one, we're given the answer to why us. God created them, male and female, he created them as his own image. He created them. And he blessed them and he gave them authority so that the rest of creation would do its job, which is to be fruitful and multiply. That's why us for humanity. But then things go wrong. Things go sideways. Um, Adam and Eve reject their role as the image bearers. They, they don't want to bear someone else's image. They want to be their own image. They want their own platform. That's one way to think of the fall anyway. And so, uh, so things go awry and uh, societies and civilizations turn on one another. And you have things where like, you know, different empires who and and tribes who battle against one another and all of it is a big mess and there's violence and people rule by strength and wealth and manipulation rather than out of stewardship and love and goodness and the image seems to be lost and so another climactic moment in the book of Genesis happens in chapter 12 where God calls this one guy Abram and says through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
What's he doing? He's restoring the image of God to Abram. He's saying, I need to get redeem the image so that people can get back into their proper position to bless the rest of creation by being the image of God. So Abraham, he lives it out a little bit. There's a couple treaties he makes where it's good for his neighbors. You see some blessing, but mostly he's bumbling along. And so are his son and, and grandson and, and great-grandson. And here we are, four generations removed from Abraham. And we've seen only modest blessing to the nations, not much flourishing or fruitfulness at all. And we get a surprising twist. The story you just heard focuses on the banished, exiled member of the chosen family. He's embedded against his will in the depths of Egypt, you know, the enemy. Remember the first hearers. They hear the word Egypt and they spit. Egypt? And there he is in Egypt, meant to demonstrate the image of God in, in Latin, the Imago Dei in a broken world. This Joseph story is a hopeful case study. One man with nothing to his name, no family as far as he knows, no possessions, no education, and he is meant to represent God and bring God's blessing to the nations. If Joseph can do it out of the depths of prison, what's to stop the nation of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness? Will they act with that simplicity, humility, and courage? Or will self-preservation appear to foil God's program of the blessing to the nations yet again? That's the tension that we get to feel in this passage. So, I want to explore Joseph being the image of God in a broken world. First, he's in Egypt, you guys. He is in a broken world. He's been falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. He's in Egypt. He's in prison. The first phrase of our, of our um, passage says, for two full years after that scene with the cupbearer and baker, no matter how long he was there before, that's a long time afterward. And Egypt is not Eden, and it is not the promised land. The Egyptians are not chosen by God to show himself. In fact, Egypt is everything that's wrong with the world as far as the Israelites are concerned. And yet God blesses Egypt and they use it to get rich, powerful, and dominant. In their power, Egypt ends up enslaving and oppressing Joseph's descendants. The story would be hard for the Israelites to hear. It's a story of things going great for their enemies. It would be hard for them to hear, kind of like it was hard for Jesus' listeners to hear a story of a Samaritan who ends up being the hero of a story, ends up being Jesus' great example of how to treat our neighbors. Maybe the way we would be scandalized by a story that benefited one of Putin's cronies or, or the Chinese Communist Party that would scandalize many Americans today. This is the first 
of many biblical instances where God will work in surprising ways with apparent enemies to show his purposes. There's a feature of Pharaoh's dreams and the way the story played out that really would get the Hebrew listener's attention, and that's the sevens. That draws our minds and hearts back to creation, back to that wonderfully fruitful place where it's teeming with life. The, you know, a popular buzzword in churches right now is it's flourishing. Everything is flourishing. The, the animals are multiplying. The plants are multiplying. The sevens draw our mind back to that. And, and frankly, for the first seven years, Egypt becomes an Eden, doesn't it? It becomes, it starts to flourish just like that. It's all going to fall apart. Welcome to human history, but it is Edenic for a while. So Joseph is in this broken place with corrupt people. And that's the appropriate point for us to pause and ask, who are we to be in a world like this? We, if, if you think of the fall as ruining everything about Egypt and ending any possibility for that, then, then we're not looking for ways to be the image of God again. But friends, that's the call to us throughout Scripture. As the Israelites wander in the wilderness, they too experience feast at times and famine at other times. They experience little repetitions of the creation and the fall again and again, who is God forming them to be? As you wander the wilderness of your life, as you experience feast and famine, who are you to be in this place? What's your sense of purpose and mission? The answer to all of these questions is on page one of the Bible. You are to be the image of God. That's who you're to be. You're to show the world what he's like. They're supposed to look at you and say, ah, that's what God's like. That's what it means to be the image of God. But it's no longer obvious, right? It's no longer obvious in me. It's blurred my, by my constant grasping of the forbidden fruit, trying to be equal with God. I'm challenged by the corruption of the world around me, and, and the image is challenged by the corruption of the world. We're constantly torn between a desperate desire to be more than we are and a crushing knowledge that we're less than we ought to be. I mean, if that doesn't describe a Wednesday morning, I, I don't know what does. That tor being torn between a desperate desire to be more than we are and the crushing knowledge that we're less than we ought to be. So in response to these questions, Joseph shines like a beacon. He himself had to walk the story of creation and fall. He had this sense of greatness early on. He's his dad's favorite that leads to his exile. But his humble service leads to his exaltation. In this passage, Joseph becomes an illustration of the Imago. Here's, it's, not just, it's not just that Joseph does good things, you guys. I want you to pay attention to this. After Joseph interprets the dream and gives Pharaoh some advice, some suggestive advice, you should find someone who's wise, you know? Um, Pharaoh is like, hey, who's gonna, who are we going to find that's wiser than this guy? 
And so what does Pharaoh do? He puts his own ring on Joseph's hand. He puts his clothes on Joseph. Joseph's always changing clothes, you guys. And that's like, that's a symbol of things are happening. You know, his, his dad's robe and then, you know, his cloak with Potiphar's wife. Here he finally gets the last clothes that he'll wear. And they're Pharaoh's clothes. He gets to ride in Pharaoh's chariot. He gets to marry, you know, people from the ruling class or a lady from the ruling class. And, you know, he's, he gets a new name. When you, if you were an Egyptian out on the streets and you saw the, the entourage going by, you would say, there's Pharaoh. After all, that's Pharaoh's chariot. That's Pharaoh's clothes. That's Pharaoh's scepter. That's all of Pharaoh's authority. And then you get a little closer and you say, wait a minute. Oh, that's not Pharaoh. That's Joseph. What is Joseph? He's an imago Pharaoh. That's what he is. He's the image of Pharaoh. He's demonstrating what it is to rule in the place of the king. Only Pharaoh is higher than him. This is God's design for people. This is us at our best, friends. His design for us is to do what, what Joseph does for Pharaoh. So in this story, we can, we can learn so much about embracing the Imago from the way Joseph acts. As I piece this through this, uh, I'm going to kind of stuff it into three categories. But I think it's not a matter of, of having, you know, training and dream interpretation or being a really skilled leader, you know, a great administrator, something like that. Thank God. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's about resisting certain temptations. And as we resist these temptations... We continue, we, we maintain, we, we grow in the image of God. After all, how was the image lost? Temptation that was given into. So the first temptation is self-dependence. When, when Pharaoh calls Joseph up out of prison, he, he tells him what he's just learned from the cupbearer. He says, next slide, he says, I've, I've heard about you that you can interpret dreams. This is a moment of temptation for Joseph. You don't realize it. This is a critical moment because Joseph could be like, why, yes, Pharaoh, I can interpret dreams. I am the dream interpreter. You see, obviously your cupbearer. Yes, that's me. I'm great at this. You know what? It's like that you're up for a promotion and the boss says, yeah, I, I heard you're, you're, you're really good at, at you know, keeping the books orderly or whatever is helpful in your job. I know there's accountants out there. Um, you know, why, yes, I am. I, I am quite good at that. And yet Joseph replies, it is not within my power, but God will speak concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. Now, I spoke of this last week, but it's such an explosive concept that I have to revisit it again and again. The Genesis story laments every time someone takes matters into their own hands. Whether it's Adam and Eve eating the fruit, or Abraham and Sarah pulling in Hagar, or Joseph tricking Isaac and Esau. Again and again, every time someone takes matters into their own hands, things fall apart. 
Relationships fall apart. The hose of blessing is kinked and it won't flow. Genesis cannot be more plain. We do not do things for God. We do things with him. He does things through us. God is not impressed with strength, skill, riches, intelligence, power, or anything else like that. In fact, he tends to work around those things so that there can be no mistake who is really at work. Jesus himself calls on his disciples to be empty-handed ministers. And when they're empty-handed, they're going to see the power of God flowing through them. I'm preaching to myself here. Friends, every day, every week, as a pastor in this church, I am drawn to material or social power in hopes that our church can be a little bit more established, you know, can grow a little bit, can have a little bit more stability, whatever, whatever. Ironically, I yearn for more help to be self-dependent. And I don't resist that temptation. What Joseph says, it's not in my power. It's not in my power. You want to see God's power in your life? Refuse to confuse it with your own. The second temptation is to self-pity. Joseph could have wallowed in his misery. He's a kid sold into slavery, betrayed into prison. Even before Pharaoh, he might have balked. I've been hurt before. Like, I interpreted dreams before and it didn't go well. Two years in prison after that. I was betrayed by my brothers. I was betrayed by Potiphar's wife. I was forgotten by the cupbearer. I'm a measly Hebrew. Who am I to speak to Pharaoh? It's not in the text, but it is in my heart. And I think it's in many of yours. We disqualify ourselves before we even have a chance to serve. Instead, near the end of the chapter, it says, Joseph began serving Pharaoh when he was 30, which sounds young to me now. <laughs> he began serving Pharaoh when he just, he did it. He got to work. Joseph rules wisely and justly when things should be going wrong. And when he does that, Egypt thrives, Egypt flourishes, Egypt grows in power. He rejects self-pity. Third temptation, self-promotion. Let's go back to Eden one more time, back to Adam and Eve. There's this moment of testing when Eve looks at the fruit in her eyes under the serpent's influence. Here's what it says. When the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. What is she drawn to? Promotion. This will make me wise. This will make me something. She wanted to claim it for herself. But what does Joseph do in our story? Upon interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, he takes a dangerous step. He gives Pharaoh advice. Can you imagine telling Pharaoh, here's what you should do? People don't like to be shoulded. 
We don't. I don't like it. I don't like that getting advice like that. Here's what you should do. Then tell me that if, if you start a sentence like that, odds are there's a little voice in my head going, no. He gives Pharaoh advice, and here's his advice. Pharaoh should look for a wise and discerning man and give him authority over all the land of Egypt. Notice what Joseph does not do. Though the fruit of power is there, he doesn't reach out and pluck it from the tree for himself. He doesn't say, hey, I know what to do, man. Put me in charge and you'll be okay. He doesn't do that. He makes himself vulnerable. Pharaoh could say, Great advice, I've got just the guy over here. And yet the Israelites that, who hear these stories in the wilderness, they, they don't get it. Moses' own family, Aaron and Miriam, are jealous of Moses. They want to take some of his authority. Later on, King Saul will be jealous of David. The kingdom will divide and Israel and Judah will battle one another. Even Jesus' own disciples following the humble Messiah will compete for leadership, respect, honor, and power in his kingdom, constantly asking, who's the greatest of us? Who gets to rule? Jesus keeps the Joseph lesson alive. He gives this great teaching in the book of Luke. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor because a person more distinguished than you may have been invited by your host. So the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your place. Then ashamed, you will begin to move to the least important place. But when you are invited, go and take the least important place so that when your host approaches, he will say to you, friend, move up here to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who share the meal with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that a description of Joseph's experience? As he humbles himself, Pharaoh says, who can we find better than this guy? In fact, he says, can we find a man like Joseph in whom the spirit of God is present? He sees Joseph constantly turning over the credit to God. He says, because God has enabled you to know all this, there's no one as wise and discerning as you are. There can be no doubt that God intended for Adam and Eve and the rest of us to have wisdom and discernment. He just didn't want us to try to take it for ourselves. His design is that we would freely receive it from him. <clears throat> now, I'm not naive. The old phrase, nice guys finish last, exists for a reason, okay? Uh, if you live this way, you may be passed over for promotions. It, this is not a simple trick to become the CEO of your company, okay? It, you, you may feel lack in your life if you live this way. Bosses who reward ambition will think you don't have it. You don't have what it takes. The sermon is not a lesson in winning friends and influencing people in the worldly sense. It's a lesson in God's economy. He will bless the nations through the one who serves by promoting God rather than self. 
So Joseph is a picture of the image of God, but he's not the ultimate picture. He's not. There's a true and greater Joseph, a true and greater Imago Dei, and of course, that's Jesus. And Jesus has to start his ministry resisting the same three temptations. When Jesus is out in the wilderness, Satan, the tempter, comes to him. And first he tempts him to self-dependence, saying, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. You can do it. Feed yourself. What's Jesus's response? Man does not live on bread alone. In other words, he's saying, I get my life from God, not from myself. Jesus is so clear. When he comes out of the desert, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, not his own power. He's emptied himself of that. He's filled with the Spirit. I tell you the solemn truth, he says, the Son can do nothing on his own initiative, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The wisest, smartest, most talented human in history, Jesus Christ, says, I only do what I see the Father doing. When faced with the temptation of pity, this is a little bit of a stretch from the temptation, but go with me for a minute. Satan says, throw yourself from the temple mount. You're hungry, you're in the wilderness. Throw yourself. Jesus refuses to put the Lord to the test, places his trust in God alone. Throwing himself from the temple would have sought to bend God's will to Satan's. But Jesus will finish his life instead, suffering to entrust himself to God's will. Not my will, but yours be done. When faced with the temptation of promotion, easy glory, Satan says, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus remembered that the only one worthy of glory was God himself. Rather than seeking glory, he was willing to endure the opposite, rejection and shame as an act of sacrifice. The son of man, he says, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Friends, Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, which we'll pray at the end of this service, to lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Now, I often hear that as like, protect me from the little temptations, doing things for myself, you know, going to the wrong places on the internet, or, I don't know, buying something on impulse, protect me from these little temptations. But I wonder if he has something bigger in mind, the temptation to do what Eve did again, to claim self-dependence, to wallow in self-pity, to seek self-promotion, and so distort God's gift and power and glory flowing through him, through us. Of this whole family in Genesis, only Joseph resisted that temptation. Who would have stood up to Satan when the kingdoms of the earth were offered? Who of you? Not me. I mean, gosh, if somebody said, hey, here's $5 million, you know, if you do this one, this, it's going to take two seconds, do this one little thing. <laughs> like, that's not even the kingdoms of the world. $5 million is a, a tiny drip. And yet, 
I don't know if I could resist that. Who would have stood up? Only Jesus. And therefore, he received what the Father was giving, and he gives it freely to us. That's the story he tells at the table. This is him giving all of his resistance of temptation freely to us. On the very night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the one who resisted temptation and gives you his life, his blessing, his flourishing, and his power. Come and eat. No matter if there's a famine, there's food for you here. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even though we repeatedly give in to temptation, you took on flesh in your son Jesus. You made yourself a servant. You resisted the, the power and honor that was thrown at you by humans thrown to you by Satan and therefore you are giving us your life and we come to this table empty handed to receive it now in Jesus name Amen